0: I forgot to get my microphone ready. <laughs> All right, that's not the best start, but welcome to the Q&A. Our first question today, and yes, I will provide a few extra cheese, cheesy, not even funny, just cheesy pieces of humor today, but our first question today coming from an anonymous person is about cremation. Can Christians do cremation? Is that like, okay, I'll read the question to you. It says, hi, Pastor Mike, I'm a follower of Christ. And I have several major illnesses which make me uninsurable, and I can't afford a funeral plan. My family will likely cremate me, but I'm really, that's in caps there, I'm really troubled about this. Can only buried bodies be resurrected? Will I miss out on eternal life and go to hell if my body is cremated? When I asked a pastor nearby, he said cremation is pagan and only burial is biblical. Is this true? Let's get into this question, and I'm going to give you some peace of mind, my anonymous friend today. So uh, one of the first things that I want to mention is that in the Bible, um, it, it never says anywhere that if you if you are um, say cremated or if you are, if you have something other than a normal burial, you won't be resurrected. Like this is not anywhere in the Bible. And whether cremation is pagan or not, whether you think it's good or bad for other reasons, it, it sh- it's just not biblical. You can't hang it on a verse that says, well, you believed in Jesus, you trusted in him for your salvation, but you weren't buried the right way, so you're going to hell. Like, that's deaf. I've never heard a pastor say this. If they did say this, they're being a bad, bad pastor. They're probably an irrational human being in general. I know that's a strong statement to make, but I just, you know, I've lived long enough to see things come in patterns. And the kind of pastor who feels that he can wager your salvation on your method of burial is exactly the kind of pastor who's going to be making that same kind of mistake in lots of places. So I would just be very leery of that kind of thing. Um, let me start in the Garden of Eden real quick and say this. The, the And we're going to go to a bunch of questions today. You guys are already loading your questions. We're going to grab 20, just to remind you. We grab 20 questions from the live chat, and I'm answering them off, off the cuff as I read them. And I'm sorry we can't get to all of them. We do our best. And... Hopefully it's of great benefit and blessing to you, helping you learn to think biblically, not just to get answers, but to learn like a process of working through an issue biblically. For example, with cremation. Um, the the first mention of death, the idea is that man goes from dust to dust. Now, dust to dust, that that is Adam was made of the dust of the earth, but also we end in dust. This is God saying, you've eaten of the fruit, now you're going to die. And the end result of your death is dust not just the dead body but dust that's really interesting cuz cremation just speeds up that process right but everybody the death sentence is you 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 go to dust at least metaphorically but even if even if you live long enough or if you wait long enough after you die you're going to have a body that decays into dust depending on the circumstances uh, it might be preserved for a really really long time if it's left out in an open field or something the dust you know will come a lot sooner if it's eaten and digested by a great white shark the body's going to become dust a lot more quickly so every like if the nature of death is dust to dust then becoming dust through cremation is not a threat to the resurrection of christ who conquers death because death is just becoming dust that in in a in a connecting the literary you know concepts of the old and new testament here Um, We can also look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys were killed in fire or or attempted to be killed in fire. And there was no fear of them having like a, a, a poor future as a result, right? This is not, there's no hint of this in the passage that just the death by fire, this was in the book of Daniel, that their death by fire would, would threaten their, their, their eternal future. That's not really there at all. God just doesn't need a certain amount of your body to start with to resurrect you. He can resurrect you if if your particles are spread across the universe. He can bring you back. He doesn't even need all of your particles, so to speak. Uh, however, God's going to do it. He does it. It's a it's a miraculous, supernatural event when he resurrects the dead. He doesn't need a certain amount to work with. There's no limit to God's power here, so that's not a problem. But I will say this. Now that that's one thing. So in other words, yeah, you're cremated. Guess what? You're still going to heaven. Okay, you're still going to have a resurrected body. The cremation is not going to affect this at all. I don't think there's any reason to think so. The very nature of the of of Christ answering the the to dust to dust issue says that cremation is not going to be a problem. But that doesn't mean there's no reason to not be cremated. Um, I think that we we should look at the traditions we have around us and the symbolism of a of a funeral service. Like I do want to have good symbolism here. It's a very important time that the way that we handle the our deceased loved ones brings honor to God, and it projects our faith about what will happen in their future. And so the Jews were doing this at the time in Jesus's day. They they would, if somebody died, they would put them, you know, especially if you were wealthy, you would go into a tomb and you'd be laid on a, on a, on a stone slab or, you know, a stone bench in the tomb, and your body would decay. They would come back later after you were just bones, and they would put those bones in a box called an ossuary. And it, the bone box, the ossuary, is about as wide as the femur, the longest- you know, bone in the human body is the femur. So they'd make the ostuary about that that wide so they could fit all the bones in. So it's not like even a skeleton set up. It's just, here's the bones. Then they would seal it, put the person's name on it usually, and then put it in, in like one of the holding places in the tomb. So a family tomb would involve having a body on a bench for a while and then eventually in a box and you'd have a collection of boxes and you would add another body there. This is why, there, you know, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus was laid in a tomb where no one had laid before, right? Because... You would normally have multiple people over time, but it was a newer tomb. It had recently been carved out, it seems. So all that being said, they had a way of honoring their their deceased and looking forward to the resurrection. Even the direction of the bodies and of the bones was to try to hint that the Jews were believing in a future resurrection. They would point them towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. And so that was significant. I think that whether we do cremation or burial, we want to have symbolism in our funeral services. This is something that's healthy. This is something I think that's positive and good, that somehow... The symbolism is there. It's, it's not like someone just died and was left out in a field, but rather there was some honor given because we're looking forward to the future and Christ-honoring symbolism. Um, now, if you're struggling and financially you just literally can't afford anything, the Lord knows that. He's not going to like punish people for those things. He, God knows. His heart for the poor is, is great. In fact, in the Old Testament, we read about sacrifices. He's like, if you do this, you have to bring this specific sacrifice. But then he would make a... Um, Easier way for the poor. If you're very poor, he would say, Okay, you can just bring like two turtle doves or some really cheap sacrifice, and that would be good enough. So I would say if you don't have the funds to do a burial that you consider to be nicer, that you consider to be more honoring, do what you can do. The Lord meets you there. That's a biblical principle, right? Because God's not going to be impartial to the poor against them, or he's not gonna be partial against them, I should say. And I think God's gonna honor you in that. Um, but I have I would also recommend, you know, at least if you live in the US. You might look into body burial situations that are just lower cost, but still actually a physical burial if you'd like to do that. Cremation is a cheap option, but there's other cheap options that you could talk to um, people about as well. That's the first question. Let's move on to the next one. Um, Marty Moxie says, oh, oh, and I'll give you a, a cheesy joke. Let me first give you a cheesy joke before I get you to Marty's question. Um, these are these are pastor jokes, right? These are jokes that pastors tell, like, and they can't help themselves and nobody laughs and you're not going to laugh either (laughs) but I'm going to laugh because I think I think jokes that aren't funny are funny Um, what kind of car did the disciples drive well it says it right there in the book of Acts they were all in one accord all right Marty Moxie's question is how do you see God when you pray my mind wants to envision a person Uh, Marty I think this is an interesting thing how do you see God when you pray um I'm gonna offer a couple thoughts and then I'm gonna make a recommendation to you. Um there's a danger in trying to visualize God, Almighty God, as a person. You could try to visualize God as as Jesus, because that's when God took on human form. But really clearly, scripture is like God. no one is like God. So there's not there's no object. You can't be like God's like a giant tree, God's like a like like Orion's belt, like the star, the constellation, or God's like a, 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 a an old man, a giant old man. <laughs> like Nope. Nope. Those are pagan images of God. Actually, God did not have any sort of human form like that, um, that you could really assign as like representing him and, until Christ came and took on flesh, but then that flesh represents his humanity. So there might be something strange about visualizing this as you pray because you're sort of emphasizing the humanity and you're, you're praying, um, because He's God. so what I'm going to suggest is, is don't. Don't visualize a person. If you, if you want to think, think conceptually about God's love, God's power, God's goodness, God's strength. Um, if you have to visualize something, I would just visualize light because God is light. Um, and, and there is no shadow turning with him, right? So, th- so there's at least something that's nondescript enough that you won't create a false image of God, but it sort of represents his holiness and his power. So I would say light. But another option, another suggestion for you, Marty, might just be praying with your eyes open when you're not around other people. Um, Jesus actually prayed with his eyes open a lot in scripture. We read about he lifted up his, his his eyes and began praying. And so there's nothing wrong with praying with your eyes open. Usually in groups, I pray with my eyes closed. When I'm alone, I tend to pray with my eyes open. In groups, I know some people will pray with their eyes open. And if I get eye contact with them while they're praying, I'm very distracted and uncomfortable. So I don't do that. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's me being, a, being weird, which is fine. Um, but in, uh, in private, I, I generally pray with my eyes open. And it actually, I think, helps me to focus in my prayers. Both are acceptable. Both are totally fine. Eyes open, eyes closed. One eye open, I guess. That could be a little weird, but go for it if you want. And um, yeah, there's my thoughts. Um, Stephen Rivers says, Is there a possibility that Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8 is actually the Holy Spirit? Is there ever any definitively male or female pronouns used in the Hebrew or Greek to know? Um... I, oh man, okay, so this is something that's not fresh on my mind. I think it would deserve a more, I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid the things that I'm trying to remember the details and I can't remember those details. I'm not gonna mention that. I'm just gonna like bar myself from talking about that. So as far as like the Greek, um, the gender of Greek terms. So like I, I can tell you, you know, no, I'm just gonna stay away from that because I, I can't remember the exact details and I don't wanna get it wrong. It is important. Um, let me just stick to the Proverbs 8 question. Proverbs 8, is that wisdom? Is that the Holy Spirit? If anything, um, wisdom in Proverbs 8 is more connected to, to Jesus than the Holy Spirit. Now I say more connected, I, I think there's a typological connection. I don't think Proverbs 8 isn't Jesus, right? Wisdom does all these things, cries aloud in the street, isn't actually Jesus, but but there is like a connection that we see there with with Jesus, if it's if it's the section I'm thinking of in Proverbs. And that would be because we have some New Testament writings that seem to be referring to Proverbs 8 when it talks about Christ being the wisdom of God. Okay, but this to me, I want to be very careful. This is a typological connection, typological connection. It's not, because Proverbs 8 is poetry. It's it's um, personifying wisdom and Christ is the wisdom of God. Now you can say, you know, there's an intimate connection between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there's a way in which, you know, Stephen, you could say that the Holy Spirit is also, the wisdom is, is also wisdom, right? Because, or for us, you know, the benefit of the spirit in our life is wisdom. We, we are given the spirit of wisdom, right? That That's in fact, something we, we have from the Holy Spirit, the gift of wisdom or word of wisdom, word of knowledge, that sort of thing. So there's a connection that's there, but I think the d- more direct connection is to Jesus when you look at Proverbs. All right, let's look at the next question. This is from uh, Trevor T. Or should I give you guys another joke real quick? All right, here's another joke. And, and and actually failed to do this. Pastors can't help themselves. I actually helped myself. I didn't do it. But when discussing who the Pharisees are and who the Sadducees are, pastors will generally, very frequently, use a joke that who knows who made up this horrible joke. But um, it's not evil. It's just it's just ridiculous. But the Pharisees, they you know they uh, they to put it tritely, they're like more legalist and more like works oriented and, and self righteous. And then. The Sadducees, they disregarded spiritual truths like the resurrection and eternal life. And so the Pharisees aren't fair, you see. And the Sadducees, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in this eternal, glorious future. So they're sad, you see. It's not good. It's just, it is. All right. Next question is from Trevor T., who asked a question about Romans 11. He says, Romans 11, uh, 25 through 32. We'll read it together in a moment. It seems to say that the Jewish people will turn back to Christ. Do you have any thoughts on that or see a connection between that and the rising number of Messianic Jews in Israel? Okay, so let's talk about the passage. Then let's talk about is this, is there a connection here between, like is it giving us a hint that prophecy is coming to pass right now? Maybe one way to put it. You didn't put it that way, but I think some people would. So Romans eleven twenty five, 25. And here we read, Lest you become uh, wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here's the thing he wants us to understand. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I'm going to give you my short exposition on this. I actually have in my Roman series. I teach through this in much more detail. If you guys are interested, just look up Mike Winger Romans 11. I mean, you you should find it or go to the playlist on my channel. You'll find playlists or go to BibleThinker.org and you can find it. But I have a teaching going through this section as well. Um, So the partial hardening is the idea that many of the Jews rejected Christ. Many of them did not receive him. So some of them did, right? Paul is one of them. Most, all the disciples are, all the initial disciples were pretty much all Jewish. So there were some, but it wasn't the nation as a whole. It wasn't this massive revival in the nation. So a partial hardening uh, has come upon Israel. And then there's a limit to the hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's this limit. There's this time in the future where the and this is where it gets to prophetic stuff, where the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, or um, the Gospels going out, and as many Gentiles as are going to receive it, at least generally speaking, not every individual are going to sort of receive it, and then something else happens. Um, Then we go on, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, and that's speaking of I think the 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 future that's going to happen for the people of Israel, partial hardening until the Gentiles, and then. Israel's is going to be saved the deliverer will come from Zion he'll banish ungodliness from Jacob that's talking about man very Jewish Israel future messianic reception for the Jewish people and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins so is that is that happening like now you, you reference all the way to verse 32 let's go ahead and read that as regards the gospel they are enemies for your sake but as regards election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers there's still a calling on the nation of Israel for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable for you, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may, they also may now receive mercy. This is short version. This is speaking about the future of Israel and a lot of people getting saved. A lot of Jewish people. Verse 32, for God has consigned all the disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Today, now let's come to today. There are record numbers of Jews, to my knowledge, coming to Christ. There's more Jews who are messianic, right? They're still Jewish, right? They're coming to their own Messiah. They're like more Jewish than ever. When you you put your faith in the Jewish Messiah, you're just like more Jewish than ever, I think. And um, while there's a rumor goes around amongst Jewish people that that's actually like you're not Jewish at all anymore. If you believe in Jesus, you can believe in other Messiahs, just not Jesus. Um, that rumor is there, yet in reality, oh man, they're just so Jewish at that point. And um, it could be, it could be that we're watching a shift, that maybe it's not like a black and white moment, like, you know, February 27th is the day the Gentiles' fullness has come in, and February 28th, that's the day that all of a sudden the the Jewish people's great revival happens. Maybe it's a shift, or maybe we're just watching, we're seeing a bump. Maybe there's just a bump, and things are going to continue as they are for a while, and then later there'll be... Another great like spiritual awakening that happens in Israel. So this is where I want to have a little bit of humility and suggest this. It's always exciting to terminate the end times within a few years of your current calendar date. And this is something I want to be very, very careful with because I've seen so many people make so many mistakes on it for so many years. I mean, just over and over again. I don't want to make that mistake. So I would say, yes, it could be. We could be sitting right now watching the fullness of the Gentiles come to completion and then we're seeing the Jewish people begin to have this revival or it could easily just be a bump. God's, you know, it's a partial hardening still. It doesn't mean total hardening. It's not like no Jews are getting saved or something. And I just want to be open to whatever God's going to do. I like looking for signs. I don't like looking for signs of signs of signs of signs. And that's when we get weird, in my opinion. And I think a lot of you guys are with me on it. Aren't you just tired of people overly predicting what's coming, overly predicting the future, um, being overly convinced that what, what they, what they see happening in the world is the fulfillment of prophecies in the way that they envision it. So I remember when, uh, when, when, when it was like rush, Russia, Rosh and, um, uh, Magog is it? No. Gog and Magog and Rosh, these different terms. And they were trying to identify this in the 70s during the Cold War as being specific nations doing certain things and they predicted the future. And they were all wrong because they were just guessing. Let's not do that anymore. All right, the next question comes from Stephanie Morse, who says, I'm a new Christian, formerly LDS, which for you guys, that's Latter-day Saint or Mormon. Many LDS folk have been very active at challenging my new beliefs, the Trinity, for example. I want to share the gospel with them did you hear my doorbell? We have a package, um, but I'm not quitting. This is live stream stuff, so I want to share the gospel with them. But I recognize I'm still learning. Do new Christians have an obligation to defend our beliefs and evangelize, or is it okay to ask these challengers to give me space? Um, both, Stephanie. It's both are true. Like I, I, you do have an obligation to evangelize and defend your beliefs as a new Christian but you don't have the obligation to know the answers to every question or to be able to perfectly defend or perfectly evangelize. So I would say, do it to your capacity, recognize your limits, and that's okay. If they hit you with questions and you go, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And you stick to what you do know. And this is okay. This is okay. When people want to talk you to their beliefs, sometimes they just ask you questions and questions and questions. And here's here's an encouragement for you, Stephanie. If they ask you a question and you answer it really well and they don't care... And they just ask another question. That's when you know this is not a fruitful conversation. I've gone down this road so many times. I've been there just like you, right? Where someone asks you a really hard question. You spend hours coming up with a a really solid, like really truly solid good answer. And then you present it to them and they don't care at all. There's no acknowledgement that what they implied isn't even true that that their challenge failed that there's something they have to take on now some truth they need to to adapt their own mind to there's only okay i'll push that aside let me try a different angle and if that's what's going on then i think that um you can you can move on you can move on from that conversation you don't have to keep debating those same people forever and ever when you feel like it's a fruitless thing that is a very empowering thing to realize you don't have to answer everyone else's questions i think you do need to answer some of your own And if you've come to that confidence about the truth of Christ and about the problems within Mormonism, um, good. Praise God. That's so wonderful. But, you know, you don't have to know everything. So, yeah, Stephanie, um, recognize when they're asking you questions that you don't have to answer. When they're asking questions that they don't even care about the answers, if people are doing that to you. Ultimately, this is kind of manipulative to you. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't care about your answer. I just want to stump you. You get the answer right? New question. You get that one right? Okay, forget it. New question. New angle. New direction. That's all I'm doing. I've been down that road many, many times, and usually it's with atheists <laughs> online, uh, where I realize you don't care about the truth. You just care about questions, right? Because I like questions, but you know what I like even more? Answers. Answers are better than questions. And if you don't think so, then we're probably not going to have a very fruitful conversation. All right. Um, Jason and Alana says, if God is timeless, how could he have sequential thoughts, especially before time was created, e.g. his decision to make time and creation. Thank you for all you do and your, all your t- you and your team do, by the way. And thank you for the mods. Be nice to my mods in the live chat, by the way. They, they deal with a lot of flack. I deal with a lot of flack. You should, you guys should see some of the comments. Well, you do see some of the comments. Um, but don't, don't don't feel sorry for me. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's just crazy. Some people are crazy out there. And um, anyway, yes, you're very welcome, Jason and Alana. Um, if God's timeless, how can he have sequential thoughts? I, I think, and, and I'm going to venture my best understanding of this, okay? This is, we're delving into like some deep philosophical things, and I, I do care about that stuff, and I try to like dabble in it at least, so because I think it it's important. Um, my thought would be, uh, if God's timeless, then he doesn't have sequential thoughts, right? That they No, he just... He just has all of this knowledge all at the same time. So they aren't sequential thoughts. It's not like he thinks this to think that to think that and then comes to this conclusion. It's rather just the knowledge of all of those things are present right now. All, Or I guess they're they're just present in God outside of time. And then at any moment in time where we're in time, he's already just knowing all of that stuff. Um, that would be a response. Um, William Lane Craig, he defends, and I think I have the book here somewhere. Um he defends a different perspective of God and time. And it's a short little book called The Only Wise God. And here, uh, the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom. Anyway, in this in this little book written by a, a real scholar, he talks about these issues. And what he's... One of the things that he gets into... I th- oh, no, 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 wait. No, no, no. I'm thinking of a different book. God in Time. I think it's just called God in Time. That would be more about the... Okay, that's a different issue. And I don't... I, I know I have it. Oh, I think I have it on Kindle. That's why. Okay, so in God and Time, this is where William Lee Craig puts out a different theory about God's relationship to time. And that would be that God is timeless or without time before the creation of the universe, right? Or a better way to put it is sans the universe, without the universe. Because it's not really before. Because it's not like it was one second before the universe. It's just, he's just timeless outside of time. There is no time. There is no universe. There's just God. So God just is. All reality is just God. And then, God creates the universe. And in that first moment, the very first moment is the first moment of the universe existing by God's divine creation. And at that moment, according William Lane Craig's thought is that maybe that's when God enters into time because he's going to interact with the universe. Um, I don't know what I think about all that. I think that's interesting. I mean, God definitely has a timelessness, right? That goes before or sands the universe. That's for sure he's timeless. And then his thoughts, it seems, would be Non sequential. They would just know everything. Jesus seems to go through thoughts while he's on the earth. So at least in Jesus, we have God in time, interacting with the universe in time, limiting himself and his knowledge, limiting his 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 own power, holding back, kind of like closing one eye, like in a sense, you're you're limiting your own your own abilities there. And and Jesus does have these sequential thoughts, but he's obviously in time. Jesus is obviously acting in time, at least in that sense. Those are some interesting things to think about and I hope you find it somewhat helpful. Check out, I think it's called God in Time, William Lynn Craig's book, God in Time. He spent a uh, number of years researching that topic and then wrote an interesting book on it. DJ Diner, question number seven says, what are our non-negotiables as Christians? What doctrines do we unapologetically plant our flags on and refuse to back down from? Good question. Um, I actually find this a really challenging topic. Um, let me start with the easy part. Okay. So the person of Christ, who Jesus is, right? Jesus is God. He, he, the deity of Christ is very, very, very important and central. The work of Christ that, well, he's also human, right? He's God and man. So if you drop either of these, you make him not God or not man, then that's not Christianity. That's, I will die on that hill. Like I will actually die on that hill. Um, not, I will kill on that hill. That's, that's, that's Islam. (laughs) I will die on that hill. And, um another one would be um the the death and resurrection of Christ that his death he dies for my sins and then he rose really truly rose physically from the dead on the third day like the the death and resurrection of Christ now if someone was like maybe it was the fourth day i think it's just, i wouldn't like kick them out of the body of Christ over that issue but the real death and resurrection of Christ absolutely that's essential um the nature of of god that there's only one god and yet We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's super important. But if you have polytheism, where you have many, 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 many different gods, and God's just one of a kind, like in Mormonism, God is one of many. And there are other gods. There are gods that are older than God. There are gods that would arguably have more power than God, or at least equal power to God. All that is very antithetical to a Christian view, and that's a hill to die on. But what about things like the inerrancy of Scripture? I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay, I believe it. But do I think that you're like not a Christian? You're not saved if you hold to a view that the scripture has errors in it. No, I think you're still saved. I think you have like these essentials. You've repented and trusted in Christ. So where do I, what do I do with that? Like I could say, okay, it's a, it's a secondary doctrine now to me. The inerrancy is a secondary doctrine. But here's where it's challenging. Just because it's secondary doesn't mean it's not important. Like there are, there are doctrines that are secondary, but they can still cause lots of harm. Maybe not loss of salvation, but lots of pain in people's lives. And when people head down the road of thinking that the Bible not reliable, it causes massive amounts of pain in their life. And so I would probably never let a teacher teach in a church that, I'm, that I had authority in if they didn't believe the Bible was reliable. Um... You know, there's some people who think, okay, yeah, I'm not an errantist, but I just think it's like these tiny, tiny minor things that don't even matter versus the Bible is just not reliable, like that view. Like um, progressive Christians, if they have, uh, modern progressive Christians, if they have like, say, a true view of Christ, a true view of his death and resurrection and salvation, but then they, and some of them do, a lot of them don't, um, and then they have all these other things that just keep getting wrong. So let me throw out another issue that I would consider secondary, but really still the impact of it is huge. Like the topic of homosexuality is really big deal right now. Um, mostly Christians, what we're dealing with is people who don't understand what our view is. They think our view is hate and it's, see, they think it's about love and hate instead of about right and wrong. And it's easy to do this because we've couched it in stories. We've couched the whole thing in people's stories, the story of their lives. So when you say, say that homosexuality is, is a sinful behavior, they think, oh, you're saying you hate people with an identity you don't like. And it's like, uh, no, we're not saying that at all. This is like, we're talking way past each other. And so this this turns into Christians who mostly just backpedal on the topic. Okay, look, I just want to have, I have 15 things I have to say before anything else. Like, I love you. I love them. I love everybody. Please don't hate me. Don't throw stuff at me. You know, this is kind of like the perspective, <laughs> just kind of crazy that um, the bigotry, which has sometimes plagued against people who are gay is turning the same bigotry is turning against christians who don't agree with those lifestyles it's just right right society never gets rid of bigotry we just pick new targets that's what we do right christianity should actually cause us to get rid of it instead they just pick new targets and the new targets is christians or or um uh white people or whatever. And and this these are all this is all just more of the same. It's more of the same. We're just we're just switching colors out and, and keeping the same racism and it's just disgusting and unchristian. Not that I want to be controversial at all, <laughs> but those are issues that I would say are like secondary in the sense of essentials of Christianity, but they're very a very big deal when it comes to like the impact they have in people's lives. So if 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 I have a Christian who thinks I don't think being gay, you know, living a gay lifestyle, like I could say being gay means like um, I'm tempted with homosexual desires. Well, that's okay. That's not sin. That's just temptation. Like we're all tempted with wicked desires and, and things that are wrong, things that we shouldn't want. That's not loss of salvation issues, right? But when you say someone's engaging in regular active uh, homosexual activities, sexual activities, or Outside of marriage, sexual activities, or constant drunkenness in their life, or they're just a, a, a glutton who's just obsessed with with um, the hedonism of food. Um, any of those things, I look at that and I go, well, that's antithetical to the gospel in a sense because it means that that person's not repenting, and they and they'll claim their faith is in Jesus, but their lifestyle shows that there's an, a totally unrepentant attitude towards sin, which makes me think that maybe there isn't real faith towards jesus so now a secondary issue starts to feel close to a primary issue and that's why it gets a little hard so in one sense i could say yes those are secondary issues those are in-house discussions on another side i go but when they threaten your very repentance of sin and your trust in christ they feel like primary issues and it gets a little bit muddy Um, so there we go some thoughts giant mushroom tree has a question. Should I, I give you guys another, another cheesy joke? Where where did I put my phone? Yaha! All right, I got my phone right here. And I, I wrote down these because I'm a pastor, so I know. Oh, yes. Okay, the manna jokes. The manna jokes. Have you guys heard the manna jokes? I haven't heard them in a few years, right? But it used to be, you know, teaching through Exodus. I don't know if anybody teaches through Exodus anymore. They should. Or Deuteronomy. And, and you get to the manna. And you have to talk about the kind of things they made with manna. Manna means what is it, right? And they make joke about that. But... Then they say, well, so they ate banana bread and they ate manakati do, do you have another one? I couldn't think of any others off the top of my head. If you guys have a mana-related food, put it in the chat. I just want to see it later. <laughs> and, oh, I'm seeing strawberries, which means we have all 20 questions for today, you guys. Please stop sending your questions. I don't want to frustrate you. <laughs> uh, but we have all the questions we'll be able to, we'll be able to get to. Um, so yeah, DJ diner, non-negotiables, right? The resurrection of Christ, the person of Christ, um, the nature of repentance and faith, the gospel itself, how you are saved. These things are essentials. And then some secondary issues are like, um, yeah, are easy to say are secondary. Some are challenging to say are secondary because they seem like they hurt people. And so they feel more important. Michael Francisco says, to what extent do we expose the works of darkness? It's Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 14, where it tells us like to expose the, the things. Um, don't partake of them, but expose them. A family member who claims to be a Christian is openly selling food with vulgar text and messages. I found out she's supplying alcohol to minors as well through her business. The first part was bad enough, but I can't say stay silent anymore. She's already unhappy with me and another family member calling her out, calling her out on behavior that endangered her child and our family, but admitted at the time that she should be a better Christian. How do we handle this? Um, okay, if it's an in-house issue as a Christian, you would you would deal with her privately. Then, if she's part of a healthy church, you would go to the leaders of the church, and you would say, hey, she's sinning against these people, and she's part of our fellowship. Can you go with me to confront her? The confrontation here would be for restoration. You would want to bring her back. You would want to bring her peace. You would bring, bring her uh, repentance and see her life change. Um, uh, but you say she's selling alcohol to minors, which is just illegal. Um, so I'm entirely open to you just calling the police if she won't listen. And this is a bummer because this is a, this is really hard interpersonal stuff to go and just say, look, I'm going to call the police on you. You need to stop. Or maybe you just call the cops. I'm not, I'm not going to make that call for you, but about what, what order you do those things in, you're dealing with someone who's doing, doing something that's just straight up illegal, um. I think that goes beyond a a local church thing where it's a sin against the body or something. This looks like you call the police to me. All right, next question is uh, David's Kenyan memoirs. He says, is the paradise mentioned by Paul in his vision of being taken to the third heaven, Jesus, to the thief on the cross, and and in the account of Lazarus, the same place? Okay, so is this the same place? The paradise that that Paul talks about um, in his vision, and Jesus talking to the thief on the cross, and the account of Lazarus. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. So, one one theory is this. So, okay, when Jesus talks about Lazarus, it's like this seems to be a low location, lower, like physically lower in the earth, whether it's uh, like... Um, how you interpret that however but basically it's it's down below when Paul says he's caught up to heaven that's above so then these wouldn't seem like they couldn't be the same place so when Lazarus is with Abraham and he's being comforted and then the other man's in Hades the rich man's in Hades in this story that Jesus tells and some would say it was a parable and it's not even meant to be taken as something that actually happened um, I lean towards thinking it, it's it's meant to be literal and um and this is this is low because Hades is right there. Hades is not hell, guys. It's a different place. But Hades is right there. Hell doesn't exist at the moment. In the future, it will. Um, and so this is down below. Then Paul's like, I was caught up into paradise, which is up into heaven. So like, where where's that? And then um, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, "You'll be with me today in paradise." What well, was that up or was that down or was that? So one theory is that Jesus that when people died trusting in God and having faith, when they died um, before Christ, they went down into this sort of like temporary holding place that was comforting, that was a good place. And that was adjacent to Hades, potentially. And depending on if that's parable or literal, when Jesus told the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. So then Jesus, when he dies on the cross, we read about this in the New Testament in Peter's writings, that like he went and preached the gospel to those in prison. That's like, what is that talking about? The idea is that maybe he went to those who were, in, who were waiting on him, who were, they weren't in the presence of God yet because Jesus hadn't actually died for them yet, but they were being comforted and waiting. And he went down and he showed them who he was and told them the gospel basically. So they, they understand the gospel. Then he takes them with them up into heaven. And so now the location for the, for the faithful dead is no longer down in this temporary holding place is now in the presence of God. So this is how, uh, you know, it could be Lazarus could have been gone with him down as he's preaching the gospel in the the spirit realm or whatever, and then taken up into heaven where now that's where paradise is now because paradise has relocated into the presence of God. So Paul says to die, um, I'd rather die and be present with the Lord because he thinks that's what's going to happen. And that's why Paul could say, I was caught up to paradise because chronologically that happened after the death and resurrection that's one possibility <laughs> something to think about uh number 10 fly serve Disciple says how can god love the whole world while hating sinners like in psalm 5 5 um, let's look at psalm 5 5 together oh, there it is the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all evildoers and scripture talks in other places too about things god hates um And let me take you to a passage, right? Proverbs 16, 6, 16, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to, to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one, the people he hates, one who sows discord among brothers. Those are things God hates. And a couple of them are just people. How can this be? If God loves the world, how could he hate the world? I mean, the world's all sin and fall short of God's glory. Like, does he hate us too? And I think my actual answer to this is that we have to realize that God's not giving us a math equation for his love. He's talking to us in real terms of of love and hate. And it's possible to have complicated feelings towards people, especially if those people are people you love dearly who are wicked people. If you have someone in your family, especially if it's a child, who is just evil, they're just a really terrible person, you love them, and there's a part of you that despises them. And especially if the sins that they've committed are directly against you. And every sin we've done is, is we don't realize how relational our sins are against God, that if God's holy, and he's the standard of holiness, when I sin, I'm sinning personally against him in a deep way that violates his very nature every time I sin. Uh, Sin is a heavy issue. It's a big issue. And so I can understand how he would look upon us with love. And yet when he sees us acting in our sins, he's like, I hate that. And there's a sense, a sense in which he could say he hates us. Why do I say a sense? Because the term is used in different ways. Sometimes hate in the Bible, it means rejecting one thing and choosing another. Right When Jesus says like, hate your father and mother, love me. He doesn't actually mean hate your parents. Th- this is this is choosing language. He's like, hate as in don't choose them. Choose me over them if the conflict is between me and them. Um, and so in the conflict between, you know, hate your own life. He says, hate your own life and follow him He doesn't want you to hate your life in like the emo sense. <laughs> he wants you to hate your life in that you're willing to lay your life down for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of serving and knowing him because he's giving you eternal life. Anyways, you are no fool to lose what you can't keep. You know, it's a game which you can't lose. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's complicated. And I think it's complicated because we're, these aren't just math issues about, I love this, I hate that. It, it, these are people issues about relationships. And we're people whom God loves. We're also people who, who live in rebellion against him. And so there is those other feelings there as well. God's wrath towards sin and sinners is real. His hatred towards them is real. But there's a sense in which you have to say, but you can't divorce that from his love and his hand reaching out. And this we see in the Old Testament all the time, when God uh, sends a prophet, and the prophet's like, like basically tells them, I'll, I'll summarize: like God hates what you're doing. What you're doing is wicked, and he's gonna he's gonna put the smack down on you. He's going to destroy you. He's gonna ruin you. And then the prophet says things like, "So please return. So please turn back. It's not too late. That's why he sent me. I want you to turn back. God wants you to get his love and not his, his his um, punishment and his chastening." In Isaiah, where he's like he's like how, how bad does it have to be Israel for you to turn back to me? It's like your whole head is sick. And he describes them if, as if they were a, a person. He describes the nation, like it's a person who's like suffering and going through all this stuff. And he's like, how bad does it have to be for you to turn back to me? And, um, and so you see how yeah, it's complicated because, because it's a real, is a relational issue <laughs> and not a math issue. And, um, if you've lived long enough, you know, relationships are complicated like that. Let's see. Number 11, Lil McNick says, I like that name. Uh, Any advice for a wife whose husband has admitted he is not as spiritually mature as the wife? She doesn't want to lead him, but is more spiritually mature. Um, my advice is to not compete. Um, for the wife, I would say just, it, it, you're, you're more spiritually mature. That's just the way it is. And that's the way it is in plenty of marriages. Um, but Don't compete. Don't compete. And I would suggest don't turn moments where your husband—I'm just giving you honest advice here—when your husband shows that glimmer of spirituality, don't turn that into a lecture moment. That's really important. Just, just let them blossom in a positive fashion, spiritually speaking. Um, if they see you as the critic of their attempts to be spiritual leaders, instead of the the cheerleader of their attempts to be a spiritual leader, then they're going to be even more reluctant to spiritually lead, right? Because they think you're better at that anyways. You just do that part in life. And yet, you know, even though you have a lot to add and you, w- you are a spiritual leader in the home, you still want them to step up. You still want them to step up. And I would say this to husbands too. If you have a wife who's not as spiritual as you are, same thing. Be the cheerleader of their, of their attempts to be spiritual and not the critic they're like, well, I was reading the Bible and I was thinking this. And you're like, oh man, that's not what it says at all. And then you just make them feel anxious and embarrassed to even talk about it. You know, give them encouragement and let them know that you're just excited. Right? my wife did this for me years ago. We weren't even married and it was about singing. And I mean, I I worship leaders sing, but I am I was never very good at harmonies. It didn't click for me. It didn't make a lot of sense. And one time we were there, maybe this is why I married her. <laughs> <laughs> One time we were we were doing some music stuff, and she was like encouraging me to do harmonies. And I and she sang and I sang a harmony, and it wasn't very good, but she was just so encouraging. This was, I mean, this was this was like fifteen years ago, but it was so encouraging. Her attitude about it was like, "Oh God, yeah," no, and it was just very genuine encouragement. Keep, you know, that was good. You, you keep trying, you know. And she didn't focus on the parts I got wrong. She just focused on motivating me to do more. And I want to have that attitude towards people in their spiritual life. I don't just want to like, right. So, so it's, it's just so good to even try reading the word, praying, seeking the Lord evangelism, um, sharing with others. It's so good that you even tried that if you didn't do it perfectly, that's not the story. The story is you did it. How cool is that? And I just want to have that encouragement towards others, especially in those close relationships. Number 12, Paphim's. Paphim says, if a born-again Christian dies suddenly with an unconfessed sin, not a lifestyle, like momentary lust or deceit, will this lead to hell or does Christ's sacrifice cover all sins, past and future? Um, Let me answer it this way. I would suggest Christ covers people, not just sin. Think about that. Christ covers people, not just sin. And I'm going to take you to a, a passage in Ephesians. And well, let's, let's ask ourselves this. Is Ephesians talking about our sins as as if here's me and Christ has to do something with my sin? Or is it more than that? He does something with me. And the thing he does to me is why I'm saved. In which case I would I would say my answer to you is a Christian who dies in the act of committing a sin if they're a true Christian, are truly saved. right? The question I have is, are they a true Christian? And I don't even know how to answer that question sometimes, and I don't try to. But in some places, you wonder if the, of the genuineness of their faith. But um, let's look at Ephesians. It says, To the saints, this is verse one, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Well, in love's part of the next sentence, but I like it there too. And so he's holy and we're holy and blameless before him. How is this? How am I holy and blameless? It's not because I'm so perfect and good. This is, this is what I call positional realities not conditional realities my my condition doesn't always have me being holy and blameless my position before Christ is holy and blameless and this is this is huge He predestined us for adoption adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ so you're adopted as as a son um, and now girls if you're like but it, it should say sons and daughters it's actually better that it doesn't We're all sons in in the adoption sense because in their culture, the son and the daughter had different rights and different inheritance. The son had the full inheritance, the full inheritance. And we're all called sons, right? This is because in Christ, we all get the full inheritance. So our modern gender language is is tripping out, but this is actually kind of exciting how it's written here in, uh, in Ephesians. So we're adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, by which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. And notice the terms in him. And here's what I want to highlight. Again, Jesus doesn't save me by just doing something to my sin. He does something to me. He puts me in him. I'm in him. And as long as I'm in him, I cannot die. Not truly, not finally. If I'm in him, I cannot be punished eternally for my sins because I'm in Christ and he can't be. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. By the way, I love this verse. I think about it frequently. God works all things. He's not causing everything, but he is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. He has a plan. He's working it all together according to that. So that we who were, I just like, I'm just keep reading scripture here because it's just awesome. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were what? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what is that? The, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell you. That's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So jesus doesn't just save me by doing something to my sin he takes me and he puts me into himself and he connects us together so that my righteousness comes from my righteous one my forgiveness comes from his constant life connected to mine right i've been crucified with christ it's no longer i who live but christ lives in me and the life i live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who died and rose for me it's beautiful yeah So yes, a Christian who dies in momentary lust or deceit goes to heaven. They go to be with Christ. Number 13, Damon Brook says, where are we when we are judged? On earth, in heaven, or somewhere in between? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, So I'm I'm in the timeline. My understanding of of eschatology, which this is going to be based on my understanding, and I could have some of the details wrong here. Um, But I think that um, the location of those judgments seems to be earth or yeah, it seems to be earth in every case. So we have a uh, judgment of, of believers happening at the beginning of the thousand year reign of Christ. And he has come to earth. It's at his second coming. He comes to earth. Now it may happen in the sky or something like that, but it would be on earth on the planet. Then at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, we have the resurrection of the unsaved dead and the second death. And that is happening. It seems on earth. Also, now God's dwelling um, uh, is centered around the, the person of Christ, who's present on Earth at the time. There's a pl- there's a sense in which heaven is is on Earth because God is there, but there's an even greater sense in which heaven and Earth meet after that, in, in the recreation, the recreation of the universe, the recreation of heaven and Earth, that the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. You have that picture in in Revelation, and then the New Jerusalem is like imagine the most glorious spot of heaven. It's now on earth. It's now on earth in its fullness. And you don't even need the sun there. It doesn't say there is no sun on the new earth and new heavens. Not to my knowledge. It never says there's no sun. It says there's no need of the sun because at least in this part of the planet where this new Jerusalem is, there is the very glory of God shining. So heaven and earth come together as it should be. Um, So there's there's my thoughts on that. Uh, James and Lindsay have a question. In Matthew 27, who are the people? Coming out of the tombs when Jesus rises, do they did they continue earthly life and die again, or ascend too? And I can answer some of your questions here, um, partially, but there's going to be a lot of I don't knows in my response to your question here. But let's talk about it a little bit. So in the passage in Matthew 27, we read about the saints. Um, let me see if I can find the passage here. Oh man, I, um, I'm not finding it. I'm, I'm really bad. Sometimes at scrolling around while I'm alive because I'm thinking about you guys and what I'm saying. But there's a term that's used about these about these um, about these believers. Maybe someone could put the verse in there, and I'll I'll look for the live chat. If you guys can help me out. But the the idea is that when Jesus dies, it was either right at his death. It says there's a great earthquake, and then some of the some of the tombs were opened. So there's local tombs. There are local tombs to Jerusalem that are open, and then after that, at some point, they come out of their tombs. Uh, the way it's worded is a little tough to realize. Like it says that after his resurrection, coming out of the tombs. Like so, it sounds like the tombs were busted open at the earthquake at the crucifixion. And in in my reading, I'm thinking that they came out of the tombs after the resurrection. Um, that that's when that happened. And um, boy, that chat's really flying by, isn't it? anyway um and thank you guys for joining me happy to have you all here with me for the q a we do this every friday at 1 p.m and i'm just answering your questions this is one of the best ways i can think to get to a lot of people specific questions and then as you listen to these different issues unpacked you learn like a way of thinking about things biblically that whether you agree with me on everything or not because you probably don't and i don't care um you're hopefully just learning how to process things through a biblical Christian mindset that helps your whole life is the idea. So, who were they? Um, the scripture does call them saints at one point. It says many saints. Now, many could have been five. I don't know. Could have been 20. Could have been, I don't know how many. Um, we never read about them again after that. So, the fact that they're called saints doesn't, I mean, you might be thinking in the Catholic sense, uh, oh, it's, they're special canonized individuals. Uh, that's probably not it. Probably they're people who would partic- partake in a future resurrection. Right? So they're, they're saints in that they were obviously saved individuals. Were they people? They could have been people that had died recently, waiting on the Messiah. Maybe they had died a week later. Maybe one of them, here's just a random thought. Maybe one of them was. Um, uh, wasn't his name Samuel the gen- the old gentleman who was there at the circumcision of Jesus and was like, Lord, you can you know I can die now. Uh, maybe he's one of them that came out. That might have been the case. It may have been that they actually had people they knew in the city or it might have been that they were people from many generations back because they've been burying in Jerusalem for a very, very long time. We're just never told. We don't know if they died again right after, if they ascended at some point and disappeared or if they just we just they just went off the scene. We just don't read about them again after this. Like there's nothing we read about them again after this, so we can't really answer those questions. Good questions. Um, Lazarus seems to have died again after his resurrection. Didn't seem to have he didn't have a glorified body. I don't think these people had glorified bodies. So, but that's just a thought. So there's a lot of I don't knows, and I'll move on. Um, professor of everything says, "How can I get close to God and overcome demons? I and I have and oppression." Getting close to God um, is often about a, biblically speaking, there is specifics here, um, a humble and uh, attitude towards God, a repentant attitude towards sin, and and this is very important, a trusting attitude towards the love and grace of God, because you're not drawing near to God if you don't trust His love for you. So trusting his love, trusting his grace, trusting his kindness towards you, that's very important. A humble attitude, that's absolutely huge and elusive because we all think we're humble, especially when we're proud. Everybody thinks they're humble. Or they or they even think, maybe I have a little bit of pride, but they have no idea how bad it is. Um, I think pride is, is, is the silent but deadly sin. <laughs> I know that's terrible. I told you cheesy jokes, but it is though, because it doesn't announce itself. It doesn't present itself. and And anyway. It's, that's the way it is. So I would say that there's, you know, formula, repentant attitude towards sin. If there's sin in my life, I'm repenting of it. Humble attitude where I'm not arrogant as I come to God and a trusting attitude towards his love for me. As I just trust his grace, I trust his kindness. I trust in Christ. And then I'm appealing to him. I'm going to him. I'm not just living my life. Um, I'm going to God. Now you said overcome demons you have. I I can't speak to you here. I I don't know what your situation is and I wouldn't venture to do like spiritual surgery on you from the one sentence I've read of your life. So I'm going to suggest that here you find faithful spiritual leaders who are stable individuals who they have to be stable and they believe in the supernatural. The problem is we often get stable people who are really anti-supernatural and they're not going to be able to help you with the spiritual struggles you're going through. Or we get people that are... that that are very much aware of the supernatural, but they're just not grounded to the natural very well, and so they end up not being a huge help because everything's a demon. Everything's a demon. It's like I dropped my guitar pick while I was leading worship. It's like those demons are trying to knock the pick out of my hands. Here's a pick. i got one right here. These ones, by the way, the, uh, the brain picks are the best ones. But... <laughs> That being said, um, so my encouragement to you would be to seek out some spiritual leadership here and 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 pray about these things. I don't know if you're experiencing true demonic oppression, in which case you really need godly leaders to come around you and pray and to seek the Lord, repent of sin if there is any, because that is, I think, an open door that we we open. Get rid of any sort of dark spiritual things in your life, obviously, would be good advice. But also, I've encountered people who they were just in a culture that made everything about demons. And so they thought they were struggling with demons when really they were just dealing with their own sinful temptations. I'm just being super honest with you. I don't know where you're at, professor of everything. I'm sorry. I can't give you better advice there. So find stable people and entrust entrust them. Bring them into your circle and tell them the whole story. Uh, number 16, simply put, says, Pastor Mike, my wife and I think we are called to move to Alaska for missions to remote Alaska. How can I know God is guiding us there? I mean, there's... There's like some obvious things. Like if God simply tells you in a way that is abundantly clear to you, then you know, right? <laughs> um, if you have, you're, you're praying about it and then you, at the same time as you're praying about it, someone reaches out and they, they tell you, they think God's telling you this. Like that might be a way to know. Um, I'm notoriously bad at this. And there's been a few things it's rare in my life where I feel like the Lord made it very clear for me to do something, do this, do that. But as I've grown in my walk and in maturity. I've gotten more and more comfortable with making choices. And let me equip you with this. God knows how to communicate to you in a way that you wouldn't know. I am not in control of any of those circumstances. You could speak to us in a variety of ways. But I would like to equip either you or maybe someone else who's listening with this. What to do when you don't know. If you don't know, you can still go. You just have to be willing to take it on the chin whatever happens next. See, we sometimes want God to tell us what to do because what we, I'm not speaking to you, but I'm speaking of me here because what I really want is a promise of success. And that's why I want him to confirm for me, tell me how to do this because I I think that that hinted at in that is that he's gonna sort of give me success in whatever this thing is. Some people are like, I'm praying Lord about who I should marry. And they think, because if God tells me who to marry, then I'll have a good marriage that is a is 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 something i don't see in scripture right like i don't see something that says like i'm going to tell you to do this and if i tell you to do it it's going to it's going to be a success in your eyes sometimes jesus is like i'm sending you out as sheep among wolves and they're going to they're going to kill you like there's they knew god was sending them and they were, it was not going to work like in the sense of human success they were going to die so what do you do when you don't even know well, you, you first have to say this, whether God tells me or not, whether I know the answer or not, I should not project my, my um, success in this thing on the word of the Lord, unless that's what he's told me, clearly, is that that's the success I'm going to have. It may be that he puts you out there so that you could go through hard times and struggle and learn, and maybe you're planting seeds, and maybe the fruit comes five generations later, for all you know and you went out with the expectation of success and that was derailing you that was discouraging you that was messing you up for years because you kept thinking it was going to do it was going to be better if this church plant had been of the lord it would have been more successful i don't know that that's true god is working his massive chess game is working with all the pieces on the board okay and and sometimes pawns are put out there and they think they just died for nothing but they were s- sacrificed so to speak because of a positioning issue on the big chess game of life. I know my analogy is probably really poor here, but I think there's some truth in it. Um, whether God shows it to you or not, it doesn't mean you're going to have necessarily success. Um, when it comes to some things though, it's worth saying, look, I know what I'm doing godly. I know it's honoring Christ. And I think that I, um, I have an idea of how to do it well, then why not do it? Why, why is it that sometimes we need like a clear word from the Lord to serve him, but not any clear word from the Lord to decide like, on major financial investments or something like that, right? Like, it almost sometimes we almost get reluctant to do good things for God. I'm not speaking of you guys because you look like you're probably not that way. But sometimes we're reluctant to do good things for the Lord, and we put that out there as, well, God hasn't really showed me that I should do that. And yet you see the need, and you know you could meet the need, but you're hanging it on some special revelation, and there can be a reluctance to do service to God under the guise of, I haven't heard from God yet. Um, so I think that if you don't know it's the Lord's will, but you know what you're doing is good and you know that you have like, that you seem to be gifted and, and, and able to do it, then I think you should just do it and see what happens. And if it's terrible, then that doesn't mean it was not worthwhile. Kelly Book says, "How uh, Would you please explain Matthew 10, 23? What is meant by before the Son of Man comes? Mark does not state this in his rendition of Jesus Sends out the twelve apostles. So, in Mark six, we don't have a phrase that we do have in Matthew ten twenty three, and there are parallel passages. That that's what I'm understanding your question to be asking. And let's look at Matthew ten twenty three. Um, when they per- when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um. Okay, it do- this doesn't occur in Matthew ten twenty three. I'm not worried about that. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be in every passage. Jesus said it, and it's recorded in Matthew ten. I think we bring some bad assumptions to this passage often. We think before the Son of Man comes refers to the second coming. I think Jesus, even though the term could be talking about the second coming when the Son of Man comes, that could be about. I think in this passage he's talking about his initial coming, his first coming, and I think the evidence is this. In the timeline, he is not sending the disciples out at his death. Right? In Matthew twenty-eight, he sends them out after his death, and he just tells them, "Go into all the world, preach the gospel." Right, that's it. In Acts, he they're, they're like, "What do we do?" He goes, "You wait and then preach the gospel, and don't worry about when I'm coming. Like it's not up to you." Here, he's like, "I'm coming so soon that it, that if if they're persecuting you in one town, you should leave that town because there isn't even enough time to reach all the towns of Israel." Jesus is talking about a coming that happens before the disciples can even reach all the towns of Israel let alone the world which is where we get in Matthew 28 the end of the book. So what's the coming of the son of man? Well, he sends out his his disciples Here's his ministry. Okay, here, here's the disciples. Here's Jesus. Okay, here's Jesus. He calls the disciples. They gather together. They travel with Jesus. He casts out demons. He preaches the gospel in various places, in different synagogues and in crowds. He's preaching. They're learning his messages. They're memorizing what he says, and they're watching how he does what he does. Then he gives them power. Hey, disciples, I'm still, you know, year a year, to two years from my crucifixion here, but but I'm going to send you guys out two by two. And you're going to go and preach to the towns of Israel. And then I'm coming around and I will collect you as I go. If they persecute you, don't worry about it. Just go to the next town. Because before you know it, I'll catch up to you and you'll be back with me. That's how I take this. That's how I understand the passage. I think that's consistent with all the gospels as well. Um, so not a, not a probable passage, I don't think. Uh, Dante Yeager or Jager, probably Yeager says oh i should give you guys another before i ask answer dante's question we've only got three more so um why did the the adam and eve jokes are the worst okay i don't generally ever do adam and eve jokes because i think they're the worst but why did god why did god make eve second well after adam he thought i could do better they're the worst they're the absolute worst Okay, all right. The next one, uh, Dante Jaeger. Hi, Pastor Mike. Greetings from Montenegro. Cool. Greetings. Have you ever read anything on Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox view of the Holy Trinity called the Monarchy of the Father? If uh, if you have, do you have any thoughts? I'm sorry, Dante. I have not read up on that, um and so I can't comment on it. I'd just be guessing at what they believed. And the problem with that, of course, is as you know. <laughs> I might be misrepresenting their their thoughts, and then reacting to my misrepresentation, which would just cause all of you guys confusion. So I won't mention a response to that. So I'm sorry, Dante. I can't give you better help there, uh, but I will give you guys another joke. It's common for pastors; it's like they can't help themselves. I'm a pastor too, so I'm speaking to myself. When you're listing and reading the names, of like the Hittites and the Moabites and the, the Parasites, to just start throwing in extra ites, and so you'll hear them, the the Parasites. Is is probably the funniest one, probably the best one. And you just you just throw it in there while you're reading the verse and you just see if anybody knows. Okay, this is my preference. You just add it in there, you say parasites, and then don't say anything, just deadpan and see if anybody notices that you said parasites. <laughs> but do you guys have any other ites that you would add to that list? You could add it in into the live chat or down in the comments below. I'm curious. Make 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 even more cheesy jokes available. Okay, the giant mushroom tree says I think I'm getting diagnosed with covert narcissistic personality disorder. Proverbs 16.5 scares me. Am I unsavable? I want to be saved and truly converted, but fear is my motive. Okay, let's let's look at Proverbs and we'll try to tackle this. This is a really heavy issue and I want to talk to you uh, very honestly and straight about it all. Okay, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to, to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Um. It sounds to me, giant mushroom tree, like what you're really coming to the realization of is, it's weird to call you giant mushroom tree. It's a pretty serious question, pretty hardcore moment here. It sounds to me what you're coming to is the realization that you're lost. And now you're asking, am I savable?" But hidden in that is a strange assumption. And the assumption is, am I good enough to be saved? And I think that is where you have misunderstood the gospel itself you're not good enough to be saved. That's why it's called grace. You can be the biggest narcissist on the planet, the most arrogant, rude, murderer, you name, you name the sin, horrible, wicked, disgusting, perverted sins, selfish, mean habits of life, a, a laundry list of, of, of horrible things you've done, and you come to Christ and you are a new creation. You are washed clean of your sin. You put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ and you are forgiven. And now he begins to do a work in your life where you look up with repentance upon those things. So this is not, am I good enough to be saved? I might be really bad. And the Bible says that I'm condemned. Well, that's that's true. That's But that's all of us in one one way or another. We're all lost. Now, maybe you're feeling like extra lost. Like you, you fell in the pit and... And, and and then fell down three more pits or something like that. But Christ can pull you out. He can pull you out. But there's another possible hidden miss, f- fake false belief or whatever that might be, and, and forgive me if it's not, but it might be present because when we get diagnosed with issues, which may be accurate diagnoses, right? What we sometimes do is we sometimes think that's just who I am. It's the way I am. It's how I'm wired. And it's, Unchangeable and it will not change. That's where Christ comes in, right? So like the topic our world likes to front load on this issue is say homosexuality. They want to say uh, gay is something you're born with. Um, now, not everybody wants to say this and even many gay lobbyists are not wanting to say this anymore. Pro-gay lobbyists, whether they're gay or not is irrelevant, but um, but they don't want to say this anymore. But, but it became popular like in the 80s and 90s and it's just kind of like become a thing. It's like you're born that way, you're born that way. And therefore it's unchangeable and this whole like that whole mentality is incorrect from a biblical perspective first corinthians 16 9 i think it is talks about this and it says a list of things that people used to be before they were christian and how their lives have changed let me read it to you and it's actually very encouraging even though it may uh seem condemning i think i said sixteen nine, but it's probably nine sixteen. did i just get them let me find the passage um I'm terrible, 6.11, 1 Corinthians 6.11. I don't know. I'm terrible with numbers. I've told you guys before, remembering the numbers of, of passages of scripture. Sometimes I can quote a verse and not tell you what chapter it's in. Um, so if that makes you feel better about yourself, then good. Okay, but check this out. Uh, 1 Corinthians, oh, 6.9. That's what it was, Six nine. Uh, or do you not know, and listen to this. You might be like, hey, I just found out I'm in a category that's not gonna inherit God's kingdom. And look, here's other people that are in that category. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and people who are, well, in the Greek, it doesn't really mean that, they're just completely wrong. Like, like I'm going to go with scripture, okay? But yes, that's completely wrong. That's like just, people are just lying about things. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Can I say, that's like pretty much most of us that's pretty much most of us not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and we're like this because we're just, it's some, you might say, well, I'm wired that way. I'm just wired to be sexually immoral. I'm just wired to be greedy. I was greedy since I was like zero years old. More, 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 more. I want, I want, I want a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. But, but look at the hope in verse 11 and such were some of you. There are people in the, in the congregation of the Corinthians that used to be, homosexual, in their behaviors. They used to be greedy and thieves and revilers and drunkards. There are a bunch of people whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ and my good news for you oh giant mushroom tree <laughs> is that your life can be changed by Jesus Christ. And You realize that you are you are hopeless apart from him and you turn and trust in him and he begins to transform you from the inside out because it's his power in you that's changing you and you can you can do that today and if anybody else is listening I'm, i mean really jesus is he sees every thought in your mind everything in your heart you turn and you put your trust in him and you ask him to save you and change you transform your life you you just you just believe he died and rose again that's it salvation is that simple and it will be such where some of you will be one of you some of you today maybe maybe after today you'll be such were some of you um all right our last question but before we get to the last question What's one more? Um, oh, yes. Here's one that I got I got from uh, John Corson, actually. And he was teaching on Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are like the sons of Aaron. Aaron's the high priest of Israel, and they're just jerks. Okay. Nadab and Abihu, they're offering strange fire. You can discuss what that means in the temple. Basically, they're, they're offering temple, uh, probably the incense with the wrong mixture, but it's, it's a demonstration that they're irreverent towards God. They're being irreverent towards God, and they're basically just wicked guys. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're, you might have a godly dad, and you may have ungodly kids, and that's kind of sort of. Well, Aaron had some issues too, <laughs> but, but at any rate, he's they're dishonoring God, and fire comes out of the temple and consumes Nadab and Abihu. And at this very intense moment, John Corson, who is always known as the pastor who has the funny laugh, um, he says that God fired them. <laughs> <sighs> God fired them. They got fired. Um, Number 20, last question. My heart has become hard. I'm so sorry to hear that. My heart has become hard due to continued rebellion, which led to a problem trusting Christ and resting in him. How to know uh, if I'm given repentance when not sorry anymore? I'm going to reword this because it's just a little hard to read. Uh, how do I know that I'm repentant when I'm not sorry anymore? I miss living near to Christ. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. This is your job. You need to break your heart before God. And if you're like, Lord, I I don't feel bad. Here's what you need to pray. God, tear away the calluses of my heart and help me to feel like I should about this sin. There's something else. When you stop committing a sin, you start seeing it for what it is. When you're in the middle of it and you keep doing it habitually, the calluses are there and they build up. But when you stop and you repent, and I can speak from personal experience, and you have some time away, you see it for what it is. You see it for what it is. So there needs to be a turning from that sin. And you, yes, you can. No, I can't. I can't do it. Yeah, you can. You, no temptation's overtaken you except what's common to man. But God's faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with his temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's a reason why I have memorized this verse. To remind myself that when I feel like I don't have a choice, that's not true. That's one of the lies I tell myself to make it feel okay to keep sinning. And yeah, pray that God would break your heart. Pray that God would break your heart. Pray. Pray. Seriously pray continually pray every day multiple times a day lord break my heart Help me see help me to see this the way you see it Help me to see the wound it is against you and just confess true things about it lord I know that my sin is a is a pain to your heart. I know that my sin is not okay I know that my sin has 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 victims and and suffering that it that it has caused or that has been enabled uh, It's been enabled by those things And when you mention those things honestly in prayer to the Lord, it starts to change in your heart. So basically what I'm saying is you start walking in the right direction and eventually you get to the right destination. Don't wait for your heart to come around. You just start doing the right thing and your heart will eventually come around. And then you can cry again. And then you can be near the Lord. And I would say the same thing for anybody here. If there's a sin you're doing that you know you should feel terrible about, but you just don't care, start praying that God would help you to see it. And distance yourself. Quit. Quit for a week. Quit for a month. Watch. You'll see it for what it is. And on that very heavy note, we're going to be ending. um, The uh, uh, announcement-wise, I've got no study Monday. This Monday, we're not having a study. Um, My Sunday night group is still meeting, but I'm just going to do like a discussion time with them, like a private discussion time with them. So I'll see some of you guys maybe there on Sunday night. And that's at 5 p.m. at my local church. Uh, you could check BibleThinker.org if you guys want details about that sort of thing. Plus, anytime anyone wants to visit me, like like live in person Sunday nights, it's a small group, and I'm happy to meet everybody and talk to you guys. But come uh, to the BibleThinker.org website and check the calendar there to make sure that we're meeting that week because we don't meet every single week. And I don't want you to make a trip for nothing. Um, other than that, um, there was something else. There was something else. Oh, well, here here's a cheesy joke from Sarah Zimmerman. She sent me. Um, She says, what kind of man was Boaz before marriage? Why, he was absolutely ruthless.